Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. All the testing that's done in a psychoeducational assessment at a school will give you enough information to think about nonverbal learning disability and to understand if somebody has this problem. is NVLD, or nonverbal learning disability? How is this condition diagnosed? What can be done about it? Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and your host. I'm happy you're here with us today. As many of you know, I am a heart mother to a heart warrior who was born with a single ventricle heart and is 27 years old at the time of this recording. That's why I am an advocate for the CHD community. I'm very excited about today's show featuring two special guests. Today's show is entitled Nonverbal Learning Disabilities in the CHD Community. Ever since Brandon Lane Phillips had his first open heart surgery when he was two years old, he wanted to be a pediatric cardiologist, just like the doctors who helped save him. Over the years, Brandon had multiple treatments and surgeries and thrived. At school, Brandon became an academically gifted student after repeating the first grade, but often felt that he struggled to keep up. He made it into medical school and in third year was referred for an educational assessment after scoring lower on a standardized exam than expected. Dr. Brandon Lane Phillips met Dr. Amy Margolis, an associate professor of medical psychology at a nonverbal learning disability or NVLD conference. Dr. Margolis is the principal investigator of a project sponsored by the NVLD project that examines the neural correlates of nonverbal learning disability. Brandon and Amy are joining us today to share their experiences of nonverbal learning disability or NVLD. Welcome back to Heart to Heart with Anna, Dr. Brandon Lane Phillips. Thank you so much for letting me be here with you again today. It's always a pleasure to join you on this podcast. Oh, I love having you on the podcast. And for my loyal listeners, I'm sure you remember Dr. Brandon Lane Phillips from some of our other programs that we did. We did one with his good friend, Jeremy Miller. That was so much fun. Yes, thank you for having us and featuring our book on your podcast. That was fantastic. Right. And then you came on by yourself another time. So I'll put the links to Dr. Phillips' other podcast episodes in the show notes. So those of you who want to take some time to listen to them, it'll be easy to find that way. I'm happy that you're back here talking about something that is brand new to me. I had never heard about this until you shared it with me. And 
I would love to know your own personal experience with nonverbal learning disabilities or NVLD. But before we get into that, Dr. Phillips, I would really like to know what your heart condition is and what surgeries you've had. I was born with Tetralogy of Fulow. Dr. Denton Cooley performed my first stroke and heart surgery when I was two years old at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. In my early 20s, between my first and second year of medical school, I went to Mayo Clinic where they would place my pulmonary valve. I had that valve replaced again in 2017 at Mayo Clinic, but the second time around, they were able to replace it in the cath valve, but rather than requiring open heart surgery. Thank goodness for medical advances. I also received a defibrillator support of my last procedure. Yeah, that's just so amazing what they can do now compared to what they could do when you were a little kid, right? Absolutely amazing. It's almost like my doctor would tell me these things were in process or maybe I would see this in the future and I never thought that I would get to see it. But when I was a fellow at Mayo Clinic, one of the things I got to see was when they first started implanting the pulmonary valves like I had done in 2017. So I'd actually gotten to be a fellow and train in that while I was at Mayo and then returned and had one of the physicians that had taken care of me before and who helped train me in my fellowship. I just love that story. That's just so amazing. Well, I know from a speech that you shared with me that you have suffered from certain learning difficulties, even at an early age. Can you share with me some of the problems that you suffered from as a child? Anna, I was tested for special education when I was in kindergarten, and I ultimately had to repeat the first grade. My mom kept many of my school records over the years, and looking back in kindergarten, I never received the satisfactory work in doing my papers neatly, finishing a task, identifying body parts, using scissors correctly, tying my shoes, and distinguishing left and right. In first grade, I had D's and F's in reading and arithmetic. My teacher specifically mentioned that my reading level was below what she expected for my grade, and she suggested that I repeat the year. Repeating the years seemed to help and my grades improved. For as long as I can remember, though, I always wanted to be a pediatric cardiologist because I loved my pediatric cardiologist, Dr. Vorgu. So I was highly motivated to do well in school. I remember telling my parents when I was four years old that I wanted to be a physician like Dr. Vorgu. Over time, my mom and I just discovered that I learned best by laying in the middle of the living room and she would call material out to me over and over again until I could recite it back to her like a well-told story. By the time I was in fourth grade, I was making mostly A's in school, but I hated reading. We were grouped, and I was in the lower reading group. Reading was just a chore. I couldn't understand why anyone would want to do that for pleasure. (laughs) Wait a minute. I'm sorry. I have to laugh because now you're a writer. (laughs) I know. So that seems kind of ironic, doesn't it? It does, but the things that I write about are things that I know or things that I want to share. There's always a purpose behind my writing. I don't really just sit down to write to write, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It's always some story or something that I want to share. But on my achievement testing in fourth grade, I scored in the top 1% nationally in mathematics, but only about the 51st percentile in reading comprehension. So there Mm -hmm. was always kind of this discrepancy between my abilities. I still vividly remember that year that on midterm exams, I only missed two questions. I failed to identify East and West correctly on a map. Oh my goodness. Did you know at that time that that was something that you struggled with? I never could remember if I was supposed to be like looking at the page and remember which one East or West was, or if I was supposed to be looking out of the page 
and identifying it. It just never clicked with me or made sense. But if you kind of think about it, not knowing East and West is kind of like not knowing left and right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I remember as a little girl having problems with left and right. And then when I was seven, I was in second grade and I broke my arm and it was my right arm. So after that, I never had trouble because I knew that my right arm was the one that had been broken. So I wonder if other people struggle with stuff like that, too, and just don't really think anything of it. So, Anna, I have to admit this, you know, when I was in elementary school and we would put our hand over our heart to say the pledge, my chest was uneven from having had open heart surgery. So my thumb went in the groove. So that's how I knew that I had my hand over the left side of my chest when I was saying the pledge. So when I redid my surgery in my early 20s, I lost that ability to do that because my chest lost that little um, curvature that it had. So at least now I've got the defibrillator to remind me what side of the left side of my chest is. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You wouldn't think that that would be something that you would struggle with for such a long time. It's still a struggle. Even when I see patients, I always have to kind of picture myself sitting the way that they're sitting. So I make sure that I, I distinguish left and right correctly. I can do it. I just have to take a little extra time and effort in doing it. That is quite a laundry list of problems that you went through and very, very specific. The interesting thing is I've talked to some other people who are also heart warriors. And as soon as we started investigating in order to put the script together for this program, some of the problems that are common, my other heart warrior friends said they had some of the same problems. So that's really, really interesting to me. Can you tell me when you were diagnosed with nonverbal learning disability? And what traits retroactively you were able to identify with that diagnosis? So during my third year of medical school, our internal medicine clerkship director, Dr. Ledoux, noticed that I had scored lower on a standardized exam than she had expected that I would. Mm-hmm. She was an adult cardiologist and asked to meet with me to discuss my scores. Because I hadn't had open heart surgery between the first and second year of med school, she knew about my underlying congenital heart defect as well. She wanted to know about my family's educational background and how I had done in school as a child. My mom had completed high school. My dad had not. No one in my immediate family had ever gone to college. Considering all this, Dr. Ledoux told me that many patients with congenital heart defects have underlying learning disabilities. I didn't know that. That was something new to me. Mm-hmm. I was still reluctant to be tested for a disability, but Dr. Ledoux was very insistent, even offering to arrange and pay for the testing herself. She told me that she didn't want to see a learning disability come between my dreams of being a pediatric cardiologist. I had graduated at the top of my high school class and the top of my college class. I told Dr. Ledoux I didn't understand how I could have a learning disability. And she suggested that I had learned to compensate for it over the years. I ultimately agreed to be tested and was diagnosed with a reading disability. I was told I needed extra time on standardized exams in medical school, but being stubborn, I refused the accommodation. I was already the kid in my class with a heart defect. I didn't want to be the one with a learning disability, too. Luckily, most of our tests in medical school were not standardized, and I was ranked in the top half of my class, but I never scored above average on a time-standardized exam. In fact, I passed my first board exam, which just a few points to spare. So in 2010, I went to complete my pediatric cardiology boards in San Francisco. 
I knew before I left the room that I had not done as well on the exam as I should have. I didn't have time to read and question. I would have to wait two years before I retook the exam. I decided to submit the required documents to get accommodation for when we took the exam. After nearly a year, I never heard back from them and called to inquire, and they told me that my testing was old and it would most likely be oh, denied. No. Oh, no. So I decided to get a second educational psychologist to retest me. He confirmed my reading learning disorder, but he also noticed the difference between my verbal and visual spatial IQ scores and suggested that I had nonverbal learning disorder. This was the first time I'd ever heard of it. We didn't cover any of my med school classes because it's not an official diagnosis in the DSM. It sounds to me like it really needs to be in your medical books because here you struggled and struggled, but I have to chuckle to myself when you said, yeah, I got the diagnosis, but I still didn't want the accommodations because that is exactly how my heart warrior is. Even if there would have been a diagnosis, I could see my child saying, no, I can do it because if his big brother could do it, he could do it. And I think that's one of the things that's amazing about so many of you heart warriors is that tenacity that you have. It seems like so many of the heart warriors I've come to know over the years, you guys are a stubborn lot, but that's how you got to survive. I think that's true. I think that's one of the things that I see in my patients is that they want to succeed and they want to do it themselves in their own way. Mm -hmm. So when you had this second test done and the doctor gave you this new diagnosis, did he say, Okay, so when you didn't know left from right and you didn't know east from west and some of these other traits, is that what he said was inclusive in that diagnosis? He really didn't give me much information on it. He just put it in the documentation that I was supposed to send back to the boards to get extra time. And of course, the board said, well, this isn't an official diagnosis. We're mm. still denying you additional testing. And I had to get another psychologist to look at everything. And luckily, like I said, my mom had saved most of my tests over the years. So I was able to provide that information for him to look at. And he was able to convince the boards that it really was a problem that I'd had all throughout childhood and wasn't a new problem. It just had not been diagnosed. I just think it's amazing that you are able to do as well as you did throughout school. I mean, I know you struggled, but being a special education teacher, it's not unusual for me to see students who have to struggle to get good grades and to seem to understand things as well as a child who doesn't have a learning disability can do. And I just think it's amazing that you became a doctor and that you were able to achieve your dream. And I'm so glad that you're working hard with Dr. Margolis and with others to make this a diagnosis that hopefully can help other heart warriors and, and even kids who don't have heart problems, because I don't think this is specific to the heart. No, it's not. Home Tonight Forever by the Baby Blues Sound Collective. 
I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home tonight forever. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Dr. Amy Margolis. Thanks so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here today with you and with Dr. Phillips. It's a great pleasure for me to have both of you. And now I'm ready to learn even more about nonverbal learning disability. So we learned in segment one that Dr. Phillips had a heart condition and had some learning disabilities from the time he was a young child, but that a lot of those disabilities stuck with him even into adulthood. So can you tell us a little bit more about what nonverbal learning disability or NVLD is, and can you give us an actual definition for it? Sure, yes. Nonverbal learning disability is a childhood disorder, and it's characterized by having visual spatial problems. So we call it nonverbal learning disability because the problems are not verbal or language based, but they're nonverbal. And we have decided it's easier to think about this as visual spatial problems and call them what they are rather than what they're not, right? So we are advocating for a change in the name of this disability or disorder to be developmental visual spatial disorder so that the name really characterizes the kind of difficulties a child or adult is having. Similar to how we call attention deficit hyperactivity disorder attention deficit disorder, right? Because the person right. is having trouble with attention. And so we're really advocating for this shift from nonverbal learning disability to developmental visual spatial disorder. Nonverbal learning disability or developmental visual spatial disorder is characterized by visual spatial problems. And then an individual has to have difficulties in other areas. So you may have visual spatial problems, but no impairment in your life, then you wouldn't meet criteria for this disorder. The same as if you had an attention problem, but it wasn't causing you any trouble in any aspect of your life, you wouldn't have an attention problem. And the areas that we tend to look in are, is a child having trouble in school or social life or at home? And then we might see specific kinds of impairments in things like math problems or social problems or difficulty with executive functions, which is sort of planning and organizing and thinking about one's thinking, metacognition, those kinds of skills or motor skills. So those are four areas where we tend to see that individuals with nonverbal learning disability or developmental visual spatial disorder might have impairment, but the impairment can occur in school or at home or in a social setting. And those kinds of impairments are really important so that we know that the person has a problem in visual spatial and it's also affecting them in life. 
That's so interesting. I wonder if I had a visual spatial problem when I was trying to learn sign language. At first, I was trying to learn sign language from a book. And I could not visualize from a two-dimensional page what I was supposed to be doing three-dimensionally. Now, that wouldn't be so much of a problem because you can go to YouTube and you can see anything. And plus, there's a really good American Sign Language Dictionary online with an actual human being doing it. But I definitely had trouble being able to visualize three-dimensional movement with a page. Is that common? You're asking an important question. I think that one distinction is that having the problem in one aspect of visual-spatial functioning is not going to make someone have a disorder. We've identified seven kinds of visual-spatial abilities. Okay. And we think right now that someone would have to have trouble in four of them in Uh order to meet criteria, but we don't really know. And we need a lot more research in order to understand that. And that's for our developmental visual spatial disorder definition that we hope to have included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM. And we hope to have that included soon so that individuals like Brandon and others, your other heart warriors you think might have this kind of difficulty, have a diagnosis. And so that clinicians have a guideline for how to think about visual spatial problems in children or adults and then get them accurately diagnosed. So you said that there are seven characteristics. Can you tell me what those characteristics are? Yeah, or I would call them dimensions of visual spatial abilities. So the seven dimensions of visual spatial abilities are visual spatial orientation and navigation, which would include finding your way to a new place. How's your sense of direction? Mm -hmm. And the second one is visual spatial construction, which could include assembling things. Like if you get your new IKEA furniture, can you follow the instructions and put it together? Visual spatial memory, which would include remembering visual details from a picture or a design or remembering how to get around a familiar place. Some people get lost in a large school building, even though they've been going to school there for a long time. Visual spatial tracking and scanning. So that has to do with locating items in an array or on a picture. So if you're looking at a crowded poster and you need to pick out an important piece of information, difficulties with spatial estimation. So spatial Mm -hmm. estimation would be estimating the distance between two things. Like if you're trying to park a car, is there space for your car? Or Mm -hmm. estimating how fast something is moving toward you. So if you're trying to cross a street, is that bicycle that's coming toward you far enough away and moving slow enough that it's safe for you to cross the street? And the sixth one is three-dimensional thinking, which sort of similar to what you were talking about, which would include thinking about how things might look when they were rotated or imagining what a drawing would look like in real life. That's sort of what you were talking about, I think, going from two-dimensional to Mm three-dimensional. And then finally, interpreting information that's presented as a picture. So like looking at a clock and knowing how to read an analog clock or looking at a diagram or a figure and knowing how to interpret it. So those are our seven dimensions of visual spatial abilities. And we think right now that if someone has a problem with four of those, that they would meet our criteria for developmental visual spatial disorder. So is this a neurodevelopmental disorder that's in the same family as ADHD and autism? Yes, that's what we think. We think this is a childhood disorder that is similar to the other neurodevelopmental disorders in that it has a brain basis Mm -hmm. and that it changes over time. And that it changes over time. And 
What do you mean by that exactly? I mean that as a child's development is unfolding across time, you'll start to notice that a particular child's trajectory doesn't look typical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you think that this condition can be inherited? Well, that we don't know yet. We really don't have any good research on the genetics or the heritability of this or familial studies. So we need to wait and see to answer that. There is some evidence that visual spatial problems relative to verbal abilities or visual spatial weaknesses relative to language-based abilities are under genetic control. So it's possible. Yeah. It's fascinating. What treatment? is available for people who have this condition? Unfortunately, right now, we don't have a lot of treatment options. We need a lot more funding and research energy going toward that. So right now, what we do for individuals with nonverbal learning disability is treat their impairments. So if someone with nonverbal learning disability is having trouble socially, we'll try to treat their social difficulties. If they're having trouble with motor skills, we'll maybe send them for occupational therapy to work on their motor development. If they're having trouble with math, we might send them to work with a math tutor. And so what we don't have is a clear understanding of how to treat the underlying visual spatial deficit and try to enhance those skills or other cognitive skills that would support and buttress the visual spatial abilities so that the person can have a more normal developmental trajectory. So we really don't have a lot of work in that area yet around how do we improve children's visual spatial abilities and what's the best time to start, how frequent should treatment be, how intensive should treatment be. So these are the kinds of questions that we really need to spend more research effort and dollars. Well, and who? Who would be doing the treatment as well? Is this something that they would have an occupational therapist for or a physical therapist or a psychiatrist or a neuropsychologist who would mm-hmm. help do cognitive remediation and work on the kind of cognitive problems. And I think those cognitive problems are also linked to the impairments that children and adults have. So I think that the, for example, social difficulties some people describe with NVLD likely come in part from some of their visual spatial problems. So when you're working on the visual spatial abilities, you need to also work on the social problem or the anxiety that the person is experiencing. So I do think that this is a team approach in our books about NVLD. We always advocate a team approach. Someone with NVLD is going to need a psychiatrist to think about medication and neuropsychologist to think about cognitive difficulties and socio-emotional functioning. And then also probably OT for motor problems and then special education teacher to help with school-related difficulties. So it really does take a team to help individuals with MBLD. And I think that when we know more about how to treat this, we can then devise parts of the treatment that can be done by different key people on the treatment team so that there's synergy and the child or adult can get the best outcome. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www 
babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. Let's start this segment by having you share with me how it was that both of you met and became involved with the NVLD project. And Dr. Phillips, I'd like to start with you. I'm really curious about your experience. First of all, why did you go to that conference? Because it doesn't sound like it was a conference that a typical pediatric cardiologist would go to. Well, I wrote my memoir when I wished upon a store. I briefly included my experience with nonverbal learning disability in X. And ever since I've been diagnosed with it, I've been trying to find more and more information about it. But it's really hard. There's not a lot of information out there. And I ultimately came across the NVLD project on the internet. So I decided to send them a copy of my memoir and a brief synopsis of my history with the condition. And because of my medical background, they connected me with some researchers at Columbia University and Johns Hopkins. And that's how I first became familiar with Dr. Margolis. In November, they actually invited me to come share my story at one of their galas. And I actually got to meet Dr. Margolis in person for the first time at that event. Okay. Okay. So this was just something that since you knew you suffered from this condition, you wanted to continue learning about it. Absolutely. And I'm really excited that they're working on getting this in the DSM. I shared a little bit of my story of struggling to get the testing accommodations that I needed. And I know if I've struggled with that, I know I probably have patients who are also struggling to get the accommodations that they need for their disability. And also, there's probably a lot of kids out there that even though they've maybe been tested for learning disabilities, people don't yet know about this disability. So it's hard for them to get the correct diagnosis. Right. And without the correct diagnosis, they're not going to get the treatment that they need. Absolutely. Okay. Dr. Margolis, is the NVLD project your brainchild? No, actually, it's not. The NVLD project was founded by Dr. Laura Lemley, who is trained as a clinical psychologist. And she started the NVLD project because she has a child with NVLD and thought that there wasn't enough information or research happening. And I met Dr. Lemley at Columbia when I was a research fellow in 2011. And we started meeting and talking about NVLD research. And at the time, I was studying the brain basis of visual spatial problems, actually in typically developing individuals. So I was looking at discrepancies between verbal and spatial abilities in the brain in the networks, I was looking at networks in the brain that would underlie 
differences in an individual between their verbal and visual spatial abilities. And these are all healthy individuals with no functional impairments in life. But as I said, many of us will have one or two difficulties in visual spatial abilities. And we were looking at how the brain was different in individuals who had more of a discrepancy between their verbal and visual spatial abilities. And that's how I met Dr. Lemley and started getting involved with the MBLD project and helped her to really think about what she could do as a philanthropist interested in this area and what the MDLD project's objectives could be in the near and long term. So we really together came up with a set of goals that were some short term and some long term, some of which we've already accomplished and some are still on the horizon. But it was a really very exciting time about 10 years ago, and we've made a lot of progress. It sounds exciting. I'm fascinated by what you've been sharing with me already. So I'm curious about what kind of modifications can actually be made for people, aside from they gave Dr. Phillips a little bit more time to do the reading. What other kind of modifications can be made? Lots of our children out there have IEP plans or they have 504 plans, so they can take some of these modifications and work them into their plans. Yeah, especially in the lower grades. Or in high school, the teachers understand that individuals with nonverbal learning disability or developmental visual spatial disorder can't look at a very crowded piece of paper the same way others can. So when math teachers hand out a page with 30 problems on it and expect the individual to do their work on a separate piece of paper and then copy their answer over onto the crowded page with 30 problems on it, that's going to really tax the scanning and organization and visual planning abilities of someone with NVLD. And it won't be hard for anybody else. So for these kids, they need their math problems written out on separate pieces of paper. They can't be asked to copy over their geometry problems onto a separate piece of paper. Just copying, you know, in high school geometry where you're given a complex diagram and you have to write a proof. These Mm -hmm. students might be able to write the proof because it's very verbal and their logic is good, but it'll be very hard for them to recopy that diagram. So they need things presented visually in a way that they can work with it. So less cluttered, more space on a page and less emphasis on them actually copying designs because that's often very hard. Also, another modification would be to try not to test someone's visual spatial abilities when you're trying to test their knowledge. So if I'm trying to test a child and know, do they know what's a rectangle and what's a square? Instead of asking them to draw each shape, I would ask them to label each shape, right? So because the motor difficulties that these kids might have could make it hard for them to draw the designs rather than to label the design. And I think other modifications are so that teachers understand these are students who need everything to be verbal instead of pictorial, instead of just giving a picture, say, of the lungs and the circulatory system and having to learn how the vena cava and the aorta are interacting, instead of just having a picture of that, they would need a narrative about how the blood flows. And then that would help them to understand the picture. Whereas for many learners, just looking at the picture, they can have the the circulatory system explained to them. But for someone with MVLD, they need much more explicit description and narrative. So those are the kinds of accommodations that I think in addition to extra time could be really helpful to remember to reduce the premium on visual spatial processing in learning or in giving an answer and then to make sure that all the 
visual spatial things someone has to look at are really clearly depicted on a page and not cluttered. Okay. It's funny that you are talking about this because I remember as a special education teacher that I had some students who seemed very easily distracted. I was a math teacher at the School for the Deaf in Mm -hmm. Austin, Texas. And I would give them two extra pieces of paper and I would cover up all of the questions above and below so they could zero in on that one problem. And I never considered that being a visual spatial difficulty, but now I do. (laughs) So I guess I was making modifications for some of my kids and didn't even know it. But those kids with attention problems might have had, in addition, a visual spatial problem or their attention problem might have just meant that they needed to only look at one thing at a time. So either way, I think you were doing a great intervention for those students. Yeah, I think it's interesting how, unfortunately, in traditional classrooms, All children are expected to learn all material the same way, on the same day, at the same time. And I felt lucky as a special education teacher that that was not expected of my students, that we recognized that our children learned differently. And because my kids had, my kids were either hard of hearing or deaf, I was able to make more modifications for them. And it was expected that we made modifications for them because just because they were deaf or hard of hearing didn't mean they didn't also have learning disabilities. In fact, so many of my students did that I had to look at each child as an individual. And I think now maybe teachers are starting to see that, but it becomes overwhelming when you have a classroom with 30 children and you're trying to make a meaningful lesson for every single child in that classroom. I felt really lucky. I never had more than 10 or 12 children in a class. So it was a little bit easier for me. Yeah. Well, this is a fairly new diagnosis, it seems. And it appears that many people have suffered with this disability for years without knowing there was a name for it or that anyone else was similarly afflicted. What testing is available for children and adults today who might be concerned that they too have NVLD? So this is the million dollar question also. I think the most common way to get assessed for NVLD is to go to a neuropsychologist and have an assessment. But that's expensive and not available in every area of the country. And then again, as I mentioned before, since the diagnosis is not in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, not every clinician is using the same definition. And some clinicians don't even think that this is a diagnosis we need to think about or talk about. They believe they can accurately diagnose someone without using this diagnosis. And we disagree because there is no other way to designate someone as having a visual spatial problem in the DSM right now. So if the core feature of NVLD or developmental visual spatial disorder is a deficit in visual spatial abilities, there is no way that you'll be able to identify that problem with a diagnosis other than DVSD, developmental visual spatial disorder, NVLD, and those are not available in the DSM. So the important thing about getting tested is if you think this is happening for you or your child is to bring some literature about this disorder to the individual who will be testing you and say, look, this is what I think I have. Can you help me? And if they say this is not a real thing, 
I suggest that you find someone else to work with. That's not always so easy to do. And then again, because of access and expense, neuropsychology is not always an option for everyone. You can also get tested at school where all the public schools in the country have to provide an assessment for a child if a parent is concerned about some specific functioning. And then as a parent, you can bring information about the disorder to the school psychologist who will do the assessment and say, this is what I'm concerned about. Can you please look at this? And all the testing that's done in a psychoeducational assessment at a school will give you enough information to think about nonverbal learning disability and to understand if somebody has this problem. And we are hopeful our mission when we have this in the DSM would be that testing isn't even required, but that a diagnosis could be made on the basis of interviewing someone about those seven dimensions of visual spatial abilities that I told you about, Mm -hmm. and then say, you're having problems in four out of seven of these areas. So it's likely that if you also have impairment, that this is developmental visual spatial disorder, and that testing would help make the diagnosis, but wouldn't be required. So that's our goal. Wow, that's an amazing goal. Now, is there a website where people can read more about this project? They can see a description of those seven areas that you said people may have problems with? Yes, for sure. All of this information is available on the NVLD project website. And if you navigate there, you'll see links to all of our work, our papers, our papers about the brain in NVLD and the prevalence of NVLD and this definition. It's all on the website. And I'll be having a link to that website in the show notes, my friend. So if you're exercising or if you're driving, don't worry about grabbing a piece of paper. Just check out the show notes, which is the description of the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Margolis. That is amazing. I'm really happy to hear that it might be something as simple as actually having an interview with a professional instead of having to go through extremely expensive testing, because I'm afraid that that would put off some people from being able to actually get the help that they need. Yes, and it's absolutely true. And thank you so much for having me today. It's been great talking with both of you and such interesting ideas to think about how we can help kids more. Absolutely. Well, before we conclude the program, Dr. Phillips, as a person who has been diagnosed with NVLD, but who has also been able to achieve his dreams of becoming a doctor, what advice do you have for others who think that they might have some kind of learning disability, regardless of their age? Anna, I've shared my story of going from a pediatric cardiology patient to a physician countless times. Sharing this part of my story is always difficult and it's a role for me. I'm still worried about my employer, my colleagues, my patients are seeing me less than because of this diagnosis. So it makes me a little reluctant to talk about it or want to share. But at the same time, I know that's the only way to get the information out and let others know that people before them have had this and there are ways of coping with it. I think having a nonverbal learning disorder, if I had not been so focused on a career goal at a young age, would have been very difficult. But I always knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I think that helped because I was willing to put in the extra work that I needed to to make things make sense for me in a way. My mom was absolutely fantastic. She continually encouraged me. She found techniques that worked for me and allowed me to compensate for areas that I was weak in. Right. 
You have a great mom. And I also think, you know, if parents recognize that their kids are having difficulties in areas, I think talking to their teachers and other professionals to help them get a diagnosis and not ignoring the signs is just extremely important. I'm very thankful to Dr. Ledoux when I was in med school for insisting that I had been tested for a learning disability. If it wasn't for her recognizing that there was a problem, even though she didn't know what the specific problem was, I may have never been able to succeed and see my dream of becoming a pediatric cardiologist come to fruition. I'm very thankful for Dr. Margulis and the other researchers for working to get this diagnosis officially recognized. I think it's just extremely important work. Yes, I think it's extremely important work too. And as a former special education teacher, I understand your reluctance. Nobody likes labels, especially if it's a label that makes them feel that they're less than their peers. But it's not until we start talking about this and take away that negative connotation that goes with it that we can open the discussion and just really address what the issue is. It's not like you're a defective person. You just think differently. Your brain works differently. That doesn't mean that you can't achieve your goals. And I think that you're a prime example of that. One of my more popular podcast episodes is with Kathy Ware, and she is a professor at a university. She also was diagnosed as learning disabled. And of course, she also is a heart warrior. But like you, she knew what she wanted to do and she worked very hard and was able to move past that label and actually achieve her goals. So friends, just because your child may be labeled with a certain learning disability doesn't mean they can't still achieve. We just have to be able to teach them in a way that their brain can make sense out of. Wouldn't you agree with that, Dr. Phillips? I think that's absolutely right. I think just finding what works and the ways that you can compensate is the best way forward with this. Right. And Dr. Margolis, do you think that this NVLD project, which I imagine is going to eventually be called the DVSD project, if you get your way, and they change the diagnosis so that it's a little bit more descriptive. Do you think that that will be part of their goal is to actually give people the tools they need so that their brains can process the information the way that is easier for them? Yeah, I really think you've summarized that in the perfect way. That's exactly the goal. Thank you so much, Dr. Margolis, for uh, coming on the program today. Happy I'm, to be here. Thank Thanks, you. everyone. Okay, uh-huh. bye. Good to bye. see you, Brandon. Bye, Amy. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Phillips, for coming back and for being vulnerable enough to share this part of your life with us so that you could help other people who suffer from the same condition that you have. And it's always a pleasure to get to visit with you. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast again. Well, I have a feeling this isn't going to be the only time. I think we're going to be talking about this more in the future. I think this condition affects a lot more people than what has been thought of previously just because we didn't have this excellent label to give us more of an idea of exactly what we can do to help people. That's it for this week's episode, my friends. If you enjoyed this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna and you're interested in starting your own podcast, why don't you check out Buzzsprout? I've been using Buzzsprout for years and I love their newsletter, their podcast for podcasters and their customer service. I honestly feel that my affiliation with them has improved the quality of my program. If you use the link in my show notes, we both get a bonus. So it's a win-win situation. 
That's it for this week's episode. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have become inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart community. Heart to Heart with Anna with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard at any time, wherever you get your podcasts. A new episode is released every Tuesday from noon Eastern time.